Welcome to Get in the Herd, a podcast about addiction and recovery brought to you by the McShin Foundation. If you or a loved one are looking for real discussions about addiction, recovery, stigma, advocacy, and most importantly, hope, then stick around. Thanks for joining us. Now sit back and get ready for another great episode of Get in the Herd. Folks, John Shenholz here, live in Richmond, Virginia, with the McShen Foundation, uh, Getting a Herd podcast, award-winning, I might remind everybody. And today, we have a really good show lined up, and half, half of our people showed up. Uh, Parker Walton from uh, Walton Selects out in Colorado. I forget that little town you come from. What town is that again, Parker? It's actually in Rye, Colorado. Rye, Colorado. Are you in Rye or are you in Richmond? I'm in Rye right now. You and Rye. How's the how's the weather out there, man? It's it's cold. It's cold and snowy right now. Oh boy, you got snow on the ground. Yeah, we've got about four inches on the ground right now. So, uh oh, folks back east that like skiing, they'd be wishing they was in Colorado right now. But we got a Dr. Ken Flynn who's supposed to join us. I'm not exactly sure why he's not here, but whether he attends or not, we're gonna have a good talk today, anyways, Parker. So. I tell the folks briefly who you are and what you do. Everybody, most people know I'm the president and co-founder of McShane, a person in long-term recovery from substance use disorders, which means I've been clean and sober almost 40 years this August. But I'm also very interested in the cannabis topic and all the good, bad, and ugly about cannabis. But And I know you're an expert in it, but just briefly tell our audience who you are and what you do. Yeah, my name is Parker Walton. Uh, I've been the owner-operator of a cannabis cultivation in Colorado since 2014 um, under the name of Cannacraft. Um, Walton Select is a company that my brother and I, Matthew Walton, have kind of put together um, spearheading uh, education, uh, trying to spearhead ed- education as uh, the newly regulated cannabis industry unfolds across country, uh, more specifically in Virginia right now. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a Virginia native, born and raised, uh, moved out to Colorado for cannabis back in 2014. Um, we've just been waiting to come back home and to do it in Virginia. So now that the, the doors are opening up, uh, we're just trying to trying to help educate the folks in Virginia so that we all have a a good, honest, moral, uh, you know, basis to, to push forward from with this industry. Well, that, that's good. Um, so if, just in case the good doctor shows up, we'll, we'll defer some of the, the good, bad, and ugly conversation about cannabis, you know, how good it is, how bad it is. Cause he, he was the counterpart on, you know, he's got some scientific evidence apparently on some of the negative stuff about it, but, and I wanted to get his spin on that, but, since it's just me and you, I want to just jump right into what's happening here in Virginia because we got, you know, we'll have Virginia people listening today and moving forward. So, Colorado, you were there when they rolled out 
legal adult use cannabis in Colorado. And you've seen the way agencies and bureaucracy, how things have taken their turns. What do you see as a big problem Virginia's facing right now with their adult use rollout? You know, personally, I, I have a big concern with corporate cannabis coming in and taking over the entire scene, the entire industry in Virginia. Um, you know, the way the medical program is set up with with only five licenses, um, those licenses being controlled by very, very big players. You know, most most of them are pharmaceutical back to some degree. Um, you know, I think my biggest concern is is the small guy uh, getting pushed out. You know, the people that really bring a lot of love and passion to, to the cultivation of this plant, which I think at the end of the day makes a tremendous difference in the overall medicinal quality of that of that final product. Uh, you know, you, you just have major corporations coming in, seeing dollar signs. Um, and not really thinking about uh, the consumer or the patient at the end of the day. You know, I, my, my, my biggest fear is the patient, uh, the medicinal cannabis patient being really pushed out of this industry very, very quickly um, and being priced out uh, by, by the products that, that are really providing help. Um, so I think it's everybody's got to be really, really aware of, of the fact that, you know, as, as these states and as everybody's pushing forward this regulation, that you really need to go in and read these bills. Um, you know, something that happened in California um, there's a lot of regulation that was voted on under the guise of, you know, legal cannabis. And everybody was really excited about that. But a lot of the, a lot of the, the forms and a lot of the format of that le- legislation and regulation was really geared to just really push it in the, the, the hands of really big corporate players. Uh, things that just had, you know, astronomical licensing fees, just things that really, really push out the common player, the small guys, um, that, that have passion for this at the end of the day are, and the ones that really should be doing the cultivating in this scene, in my opinion. So, you, you okay, you mentioned big players. Obviously, you needed these big players to get the ball rolling here, so I think we can, you know, slap them on the back for that. Thank you so much for spending millions of dollars and greasing the wheel and getting uh, medical cannabis approved here in Virginia. But now the, the biggest market's going to be consumer, consumption by adults. And yet the, the medical folks want to control or at least want to monopolize the adult use, the legal cannabis use. But in my mind, see, I'm just a simple guy. I, I know you drive around Virginia. We have hundreds of wineries, okay, where people get to go out and buy a piece of land, grow grapes. They can either sell those grapes to a winery or, or they can create their own, you know, wine making stuff. And then I see we must have hundreds of wineries hundreds of breweries these microbreweries where they get to go open up a brewery make their own beer and have customers come in and buy it and we even have stills legal stills in virginia where you can create your own homegrown still but i don't see none of those products being over regulated or bureaucratized like i see what they're trying to do to Canada. because i've been downtown during a couple of these meetings and and it's almost comical the way these special interest folks, these lobbyists, and these politicians are moving forward. And I, and I keep asking myself, why don't they just keep it simple? Why are they complicating this? You got any idea, Parker, why they want to do this? You know, I think it has a lot to do with the fact that it has been it's been illegal and it's been prohibited for so long that I think. You know, everybody's uh, when I say everybody, I mean, the regulators and the lawmakers are very, very cognizant of the fact that we're dealing with a substance that is, has been taboo for, for most of every all of our lives. Um, so, you know, I think it's it's there, it's difficult to take something that has has been, you know, sold to us as as something that's so horrible 
um, you know, the, all through the reefer madness, something that is just so terrible for everybody, where now it's like almost overnight that they're, they're accepting it. Um, so I think their they're play in that is just to try to over-regulate it and to regulate it as much as they can to show people that, okay, it, is, you know, it still might be dangerous, but we're doing everything that we can to, to eliminate that danger. Um, but at the end of the day, in my opinion, you know, the regulations that they're putting in are, are doing nothing to protect the consumer or the patient at the end of the day. All it's doing is providing uh, roadblocks for, for business owners trying to get into the business. Um, so, you know, as far as what their ultimate agenda is at the, at the end of the day, I can't tell. Uh, but all I know is as a, as a small owner, uh, small business owner and operator in this space, these regulations make it very, very difficult day to day to run a business. So let, let's start from the beginning. Let's say you want to, like I know here in Virginia, that you go to a lot of uh, places that sell um, growing apparatuses, you know, dirt, soil, grow tents, lights, the, people giving away seeds, okay? And, and you know, God bless folks for giving seeds away, not trying to make a buck. You know, they want to see a lot of people grow stuff, kind of like Johnny Appleseed on every corner with these cannabis seeds. But you, you really don't know what seeds they're giving away, not saying they're, they're poisonous or anything, but, it, you know, they might be saying it's supposed to be a good strain or whatever, and it turns out to be, you know, a cheap strain. Who knows, you know? So how, how do you think if, if Virginia were to create a, a good seed verification type system, which they have a pretty strong seed uh, bureaucracy as, as far as corn and tomatoes and other plants go, how, how would you just let's focus on the seeds for a minute. How do you think the seed rollout should look here in Virginia? You know, that's, and that's always a precarious uh, topic uh, for any newly regulated industry that's seeing adult use or even medical, um, you know, cause there's this concept of, um, you know, uh, just artificial insemination kind of, you know, where this stuff is just coming out of nowhere. Um, you know, it's, it's just, where are these genetics coming from that these, these cultivators are starting off with these, these licensed operations, you know, where are they getting these seeds? And ultimately it comes back, it's, it's really hush hush, but ultimately what it is, is, you know, that the state kind of turns their head for a period of time for these licenses to go out onto the black market is really what it is and collect genetics so that they can cultivate it in, in their legal space. Um, and in Colorado, you know, there was a, there was, you know, we were grandfathered in, there was a time frame that you had at, you know, I forget exactly how long it was. There was a time frame that the, the, the MED in Colorado, which is the marijuana enforcement division, they kind of, they came out and they said, you know, we understand that these genetics have to come from somewhere. So we're going to give you X amount of time to bring all this stuff in the, into the system. Once that time is over, we kind of shut it closed and then nothing else can come into the system from there unless it's verified already in the system. Um, you know, so as, as Virginia push forwards, it's, it's extremely important that the seed material and that the genetics that people are starting to buy, that there's transparency to what it is. Um, there's lots of different cultivars. There's lots of different genetics and cannabis nowadays. Um, so it's, it could really be anything as far as a crapshoot of what you're getting. Um, there's no really, there is no standardized uh, system to, to, track this stuff or to, to, to look at this stuff or even to compare it to anything else. So at this point, you're really just taking the word of whoever you're buying the seeds from or whoever you're getting those seeds from to the, to the legitimacy of what that material actually is. Um, so, you know, for a big purpose of what we're trying to do with Walton Select is on the, the, the cross hybridization and genetic side where we'll start to go in and, and look at this stuff on a, a molecular level. Um, get the sequencing of this genetic code and start to be able to create a standardized system that everything can be compared to looking back. Um, and that's, you know, in my opinion, that's, that's something that should be open source. It's something that shouldn't be privatized because not, not, 
there's no one person in the world that has all of this information right now uh, that anybody knows of that's public. Um, so, you know, to create something like this, it's really going to help the industry. It, ha- it should be an open source system that everybody that has interest in putting their two cents, so to speak, into this can and creating the most uh, the most detailed system that we can as far as, you know, the cannabis genome and the cannabis genetics. So I hear there's, there's two types of cannabis. It's indica and sativa. Does that sound right? You know, those are just, those are just characteristic. You know, those are terms just to, to generally describe the growth uh, characteristics of a plant. Um, so historically, sativa is something that is coming from equatorial regions, um, something that is narrow leaf. You know, sativa purely just means narrow leaf. Uh, where indica is something that is going to be something more broader leaf. Um, so when you're talking about sativa indica, you know, especially with where we are nowadays with cannabis genetics, it really tells you nothing. It tells you nothing to have a differentiation or ratio between sativa to indica. So the only difference between indica and sativa is the, the leaf. One's broad leaf, one's narrow leaf. Scientifically, that's the only difference in those two terms. Um, through time, you know, we've put different meanings to what a sativa is and what an indica is. Um, because naturally, when we're talking about land race genetics, things that would grow on this earth without us, and that they do, cannabis all around the world, you know, things that are going to be more narrow leaf are going to be more psychoactive naturally, uh, where things that are going to be more broadleaf are going to be more narcotic. Um, and that's, that's the basis of it. And that's where those characteristics have, you know, they've kind of gained their, 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 their appeals and their effects in this community as far as saying, oh, this is a sativa or this is an indica, but it's really telling you nothing. It's telling you nothing at all. Okay. So, and then some seeds, they're called feminized and some is called auto. What's the, you know, what is, what do they mean? So you, there's actually, there's even more types than twos. I mean, really when you're dealing with cannabis sativa, which is, you know, the scientific uh, name for the, what we're discussing, you know, when we're discussing marijuana or hemp, it is the same exact plant. It is cannabis sativa. Um, within that you have regular seed material and you have feminized seed material. Um, so regular, regular seed material means that when you pop those seeds out, that you have a chance to either get a male or a female plant. Um, so, uh, feminized means that when you plant those seeds out, that the vast majority of those, if not all of them, scientifically, it's not, it's not a hundred percent. Um, there is a chance to get a male through feminized, but it's much, 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 much less. Um, so in theory, the feminized seeds, you're only going to be dealing with females. Um, the, the allure and the draw to that nowadays is that if you don't, you don't have to worry about, you know, culling a male before it pollinates your, your crop as you go into flower, um, male plants produce pollen, which pollinate female plants so if you're flowering a female plant out to cultivate for the bud material itself um, then you do not want a male to be around because once that male pollinates that female that male that female sends all of its energy into seed production Um, once seed seed is being produced it no longer is focusing on the production of the bud or or the medicine so to speak of the plant so okay see i'm learning every time i have a conversation with you i learn something because you do talk fast and i'm a slow comprehender of words but so if if you can you can grow male and female plants they'll both have flowers but once a female plant gets the male pollen then it's gonna that plant's gonna grow more seeds and bud material 
Yeah. So all of its energy at that point, once it's pollinated, will start going into seed production and less into the flower production. The well, that, production. Ex- that explains why I was a kid smoking all that Mexican and Colombian stuff. It was loaded with seeds, man. So it must have been outdoor plants where they couldn't stop the pollen from coming. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, and I tell you what the things, you know, if only I knew then, man. <laughs> the um so an auto means you can grow a plant like like you know, I'm you know, I got some seeds from the wizard and I'm growing some plants, see if I can be a cultivar, I'll learn how to do this. And from what I understand, I got got eighteen hours of light. Six hours of darkness, but when I flip it from 12 hours of light, they'll automatically go into bud mode. So are you speaking on auto, auto flower seeds, so to speak, or just in general? Yeah, I got some seeds from your brother, uh, Kool-Aid. Okay. So. okay. And those are going to be regular seeds. So when we're talking about auto flower, um, we're, we're talking about another, a, a, a different genus of cannabis. Um, so it's not, it's not cannabis sativa. Is, is, there a fo- is there a photo or an auto? Do they use the word photo? What so what it's photo period. Um, photo so, period. I think these are photos. Yep. Yeah, so so that that's the two classifications now that auto flowering has become popular in industry and it's more and more people are seeing it. So you either have a photo period specific plant or you have an auto flowering plant. Okay. Auto, a photo specific plant is what you're talking about as far as initiating different light cycles. Um, so as long as you're keeping that plant in 18 hours of light that plant will remain in a perpetual veg state. So that plant will never go and start flowering as long as it's getting 18, 18 to 24 hours light. It is cultivar dependent as well. You know, certain cultivars can handle, you know, 14 to 16 hours, but you know, that's that we're picking hairs here. We're talking about photo period. We're talking about two different stages. So the plant having a vegetative stage that is dictated by the light cycle. And then in order to initiate the flower cycle, the bud set starting to create the, the, the bud on the plant, you have to drop that light period down to 12 hours of darkness, 12 hours of light. So the increased darkness time is what causes the photo period specific plants to begin flowering. Um, when we're talking about auto flowering plants, they, they, they are not photo period specific. So those plants will begin to flower under 24 hours of light if given. Um, so once those auto flowering plants reach a certain age, they will start to flower regardless of the photo period that they're receiving. And that's the biggest difference between photo period specific and auto flowering plants is the photo, photo uh, period specific, the ones that we're talking about, the regular and the feminized seeds of cannabis sativa, those that you need to change the light cycle in order to initiate flowering. For auto flower plants, more of the ruderalis, cannabis ruderalis uh, genus, um, those are the ones that will flower regardless of how much light they're getting. The, once or they ha- reach, or, a, or how little light, or how little light, yeah. Right. Um, so once once they reach a certain amount of time, they will start flowering. Um, that, that's actually a good question because I don't have a tremendous amount of experience with auto flowers, so I'm not sure what that threshold is. Is about how how little light they can receive for them to still do what they need to do. That's actually that's that's probably something that's being explored pretty heavily in the auto flower space, and it's probably something that's very cultivar dependent, genetic dependent. So, so the, are you familiar with the Kool Aid seeds that I, that Matthew gave me? Intimately, yes. Okay. Well, the plants, I guess they got to be two months old right now. And again, they're still small, kind of bushy. They look pretty cool. I'm proud of this, you know, because I, you know, I want to be really good at this. And, uh, but, but they haven't grown very tall, you know, and, and at some point do they sprout up or? 
You know, and that's very, it's, there's so many variables that come into cultivation. You know, there's, there's environments, uh, environmental conditions, as far as your, your temperature, humidity, and your light intensity, all those things play a massive difference in how these genetics express. Oh, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to like this. Okay. I got them in a 10. Okay. <laughs> I got 80 degrees and 40 degree humidity. I got yeah. the $500 light and I keep it 18 inches above the top of the plant. And that's, and that's what I got, what I know, you know, so. Yeah. And, you know, that's the thing. It's, you know, it's, and that's with, with cultivation becoming so popular now, it's, you know, it, it's, it is a very specific, uh, it is not, it's not easy. Cultivating cannabis is, is not an easy thing. You know, it's, it's made out to be much easier than it is. Um, you know, being able to, to more light intensity can cause the plant to stay shorter. Um, less light intensity can call that, cause that plant to stretch. Yeah, I got to turn halfway up. You know, it's one of those lights you can crank all the way up or all the way down. I got it like halfway turned up, you know. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of things. It's hard for me to say right here, you know, why they might be staying right. sh- more stout. Um, right. th- there's a lot of, lot of factors. That well, I got to run it a litter on the seeds, obviously, man. I mean, you know, no, sir. <laughs> no, sir. <laughs> No, sir. No, sir. Only the best now, for Mr. Fucking Mr. John. Now I got my recovery friends, you know, they, you know, they, they wonder, what am I doing growing cannabis? I said, well, I want to know everything I can about this space because, you know, I'm developing relationships in this space, but l- like my own family members, you know, who consume, you know, cannabis, you know, they, they can do that. You know, they're not like me. We're one's too many, a thousand, never know, but I got them lining up for them plants when they start budding up, man. So, I won't have no problem finding, you know, people out there tell me what we got. Yeah. The, the, um, so I'm, I'm excited about that. But now here in Virginia, I'm irritated with our politicians a little bit. And, and I happen to have been in a lot of people's houses throughout my life in Virginia. And I've been to some of these wine cellars people have. And I, and I, got, I got friends, you walk down to their basement, which is the size of their house. It's floor to ceiling, wall to wall. They must have 10,000 bottles of wine down. There's no limit on how many different brands and flavors of wine. And I got to thinking these, these cannabis consumers in Virginia, they, they probably like, might like to grow plants and, and buds keep a long time in those jars I see. Is that correct? You know, it's, again, it's, it's really dependent on the the environmental conditions that you're keeping it in. You know, the two biggest degraders to the quality of cannabis is, is light is UV and oxygen. Um, So as long as you're keeping them stored in an airtight container, that's not, not coming into contact with sunlight, then I mean, it's, you can really store this stuff for a long time. Um, You know, technology, we're learning a lot. A year or two, three years, four years. I, you know, I'd say, yeah, a couple of years you could store, I've stored, we've stored cannabis and glass jars for a couple of years. Um, you, you will have de- degradation to a certain degree, but you're also getting a different product as well as that, as that bud sits in that jar and it cures, you know, it's starting to take on different qualities, you know, and that's, that's what part of the cure is, is it's almost refining, uh, you know, whatever you are curing. So, so as that so two year old bud stored, right. Is either going to be better or worse or more likely it's, better. It's going to be different. You different. know, I, it's, it's hard to say better or worse. I guess that really is, it's a, it's a perspective thing. Um, that's very subjective, but it will be different. Um, you know, as those terpenes have time to sit and, and evolve, it, it will create a different smell, a different effect, a uh, different flavor, different taste. Um, so the cure does have a, a, a massive effect on how this product changes over time. Yeah, but I can see where home growers, they would, they want to be able to grow a couple few plants of one strain, store the buds, grow a couple few more plants, store the buds. 
I don't think four plants is enough. And I don't think that, you know, that one ounce limit is appropriate. I think a, a homeowner should be able to grow, you know, a couple dozen plants at a time at different stages. They should have, you know, 20 different jars in their, their cannabis cellar, call it what you want. I mean, this is the stuff that's irritating me. It's like we're being discriminated against coming out the box, coming out the gate. Yeah. We're being treated like criminals uh, from day one. And and that's where we're coming from, unfortunately, is, is you know, prohibition. Uh, so cannabis, there's still so much taboo with cannabis, um, where a lot of these regulators and lawmakers, their their biggest, I think their biggest fear in, in making these low plant counts, you know, four plants for, for a homeowner, is just trying to limit how much of that product is going back into the black market. Um, you know, it's, but it, it doesn't at the end of the day, you know, cause there is no size restraints on how big you can grow those plants. So you could literally grow four trees and you could get pounds and pounds and pounds of cannabis off of it. Well, I'm glad um, you mentioned the size cause I was at your facility in Colorado and I got pictures of you next to these plants that are taller than you. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering why, why did your Kool-Aid brand grow six feet tall, but my Kool-Aid brand ain't, but you know, eight inches, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I keep looking for I'm I want them to push the top of my tent up, you know, in my shed, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, and it's that's all the environments are a little but, bit different, you know. All right, now you mentioned black market, okay? Now now I understand like just in a 6-month period of the cost of quality cannabis in Colorado has gone way down because a neighboring state has different laws and it's cheaper for people to go over there and buy it or you know, I think as far as what's going on in Colorado, I think there's a lot of things at play. Um, you know, it's and it's hard for anyone to really say definitively what's going on. You know, Oklahoma uh, came online about two years ago um, and Oklahoma is, for lack of a better way to describe it, completely wide open. Um, you know, they have really just embraced cannabis cultivation and they really are not regulating it at all comparatively to where the other states are. So you have a lot of people that have gone out to Oklahoma got licensed uh, or not licensed and, and, and just cultivating a lot of cannabis because the, the laws are very lenient to that around that area now. Um, so you, you have a lot of, a lot of, a lot of products being produced there, you know, for the legal market and also for the legal market. So now, how, now I, I wish the doctor would have showed up today because I think everybody with half a brain got to agree that a product like tobacco and nicotine got to be worse than cannabis. I mean, would that be a safe argument? You know, and I, you know, I, I'm I'm a cannabis enthusiast, so you know, of course, I, I'm I'm biased on this, but I, I totally agree with you. You know, especially especially medical doctors that are prescribing opioids for pain and all these things. I mean, it's I look at this as an option. I, I don't well, think that. Well, the reason I brought that up because, like in Virginia, they're very proud of their tobacco heritage. Okay, we're mm -hmm. a big tobacco state; always have been. But you know, in the last 20, 30 years, with the reduction in you know teen use and nicotine, they cut back on a lot of things. But the point is this: for years, whatever you could buy a pack of cigarettes for in Virginia was ten times more in New York. Mm -hmm. But yet, at the same time, you can buy cigarettes in Virginia. You know. Damn near at every mini mart, 7-Eleven, grocery store, everybody sells them, okay? And, and, and yet people would buy low here and then go up to New York and sell high. But they have agencies that look out for that stuff and they monitor it and they enforce the rules and the regulations and the laws. And every now and then, I go to a lot of jails and prisons, as you know, and every now and then I'll be sitting in there with a guy doing five years because he had a pickup truckload of cigarettes he took up to New York and he... 
you know, by the time you get done talking to him, you realize he was part of a $2 million a year sting operation. You know, it wasn't really small potatoes. Mm-hmm. But, but yet here in Virginia, they're opening up the cannabis industry and, and they're just they're doing more than discriminating, more than rigging, more than stigmatizing, more than demonizing. It's like they, they, they wanted to fail coming out the gate, you know, and, and it's, and there's just so much hate naysayers out there and it just drives me crazy. It's a continuation. It's all, it's almost going to be like a uh, cannabis crow is coming. You know, we had Jim crow, we had recovery crow. And now we got cannabis crow right around mm-hmm. the corner. And, um, in, in, and you're pretty knowledgeable on all the other states rollout. So, if you if you could give some just simple talking points, what should Virginia do when it comes to rolling out this? How should it look? What should the model really look like if you could create it? I think it all comes down to your supply and your demand. Um, I think where all the, the the markets, in my opinion, to date have failed with regulated uh, recreational adult use cannabis has been in allowing too many cultivators to saturate the market. Um, you know, it's, of course, there's a massive demand for cannabis in these new states as they roll out. And of course, the states are trying to, to create as much revenue as they can off of this demand. Um, but at the same token, if you don't, don't control how much product is being put into the market, you see what you see in Colorado and Oregon and Washington State and California. That's, that happens year after year is that, you know, there's just too much product, uh, too many people producing and not enough people buying, which ultimately drives the price down. It becomes a price war. Um, you know, cannabis, uh, you know, is going to be looked, it's becoming more and more of a commodity every day. Uh, but we cannot, in my opinion, turn our, our backs on the medicinal properties of this plant as well. That don't, that just, that takes it and makes it something more than a commodity. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a, there's a group of people that are, I think everybody at the end of the day, not just a group of people. And when I say a group of people, I'm speaking on medicinal patients but i think everybody at the end of the day loses out when the when it becomes a price war who can who can produce the cheapest pound of cannabis um, and that being the only differentiating factor in a market i think that is the biggest problem that i've seen from state to state um, so to, you know in trying to speak to virginia you know it's I, I really hope to see that they start to monitor these cultivation licenses from day one um, not something that they come back and look at a couple years down the road, but something that they are on top of from day one to make sure that there is not an oversaturation of product, which drives the price down, which ultimately drives the quality down. Once you start driving the quality down, you start to have an inferior product all across the market. And then you get people like myself who have a passion for it that want to produce a very high quality product that is finding it very difficult to be able to do that. Um, and as you have more and more people like myself who are tremendously passionate about cannabis but not able to play in the regulated game you know where do you think all these people are going to go they're going to go to the market that's existed the black market that's always been there for the past 40 50 years so i think a lot of the states that the the laws that they're pushing they're just making all the people that really should be cultivating cannabis not able to so they're going to go do it where they can and where they have been Um, and so i think it's a massive perpetuation of the black market and not noticing the fact that lower quality product on the rec market is going to force people back to the black market. You know, I, I wasn't here in 1933, obviously when they repealed prohibition, but I do know like during world war two, which is, you know, less than 10 years after the repeal of prohibition, you can, you can Google like beer, liquor and wine advertisement. And you can see what it was like hundreds of different, beer companies, beer labels, wine labels, liquor labels. And, and then, and I would 
dare say by the 1970s, you know, what we saw was like Anheuser-Busch and the Clydesdales and, you know, Millertime. And so some major players did, I guess, through, you know, buying up corporations. They, they had big commodity, uh, commo- you know, big corporate conglomerates. Yet in the last twenty years, you go to a Seven Eleven or a bar, you see more microbreweries and you know startups. So I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think politicians should be worried about this. What you say is correct. You know, supply and demand. Let the consumers drive these markets and, and these policies, not politicians. Also, when they started doing their excise tax back in '33 there was a percent was supposed to go to help like alcoholics, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But eventually I guess that money went more to the enforcement side, the police, the jails, the prisons, and less money to treat the people with the illness consuming the products, mm-hmm. even though 80, 85% of the consumers don't have an issue or problem. And I think those numbers are parallel with cannabis. There's going to be a percent of folks that's going to have a problem. They're going to need help, but I just don't see our policymakers setting aside an appropriate amount of funding to provide the appropriate amount of relief for these people coming. So I have a great interest in seeing to it that this thing gets done right all the way across the board, you know, hence the relationships with this industry. Cause you know, I want to, I want to support the industry appropriately adult like, you know, mature like based on the best science we got, but I also want to make sure, you know, the people that need it and need help, whether it be medical cannabis use or recovery from over consumption of you know adult use you know so i'm looking at this from all angles so you know i'm kind of a special guy i think i wish the doctor would have showed up because i really wanted to ask him what is the real sign starting to show do you have any idea you know some of the some of the good stuff about cannabis you know and then we'll get into some of the negative stuff yeah, you know, and I, that's the biggest thing for me is education. Um, it's we're getting into a place for the first time, you know, and since nineteen, you know, the nineteen forties, that we could even really research this plan, you know, legally and be able to put, you know, the proper money and the proper scientific research behind it to truly get good answers, not answers that's driven by policy or driven by biasness, but but you know, science that is just science, you know, that is we're just looking to get good information. Um, you know, I think uh, there's a lot more of these studies that are being done overseas um, in England and uh, in India. A lot of these places are really, I think, in my opinion, leading the leading the charge as far as good, uh, transparent research into this stuff. Um, you know, I was I was definitely looking forward to, to talking with Dr. Finn uh, this this afternoon about this, because I think the biggest thing about a lot of this research is we need to see where the money's coming from to back this research. Um, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're dealing with a, sub, with a, with a substance and a plant at the end of the day, a plant that grows naturally out of this planet without us. Uh, we're dealing with a plant that has been illegal for, you know, 70 years, 70 plus years. Um, so there's going to be biasness to it. Um, and I'm not sitting here as an advocate saying that there's, there are no negatives and that there are no you know downsides to it, but there there obviously are benefits to it. And I think that, that nobody can turn their head to that. I think nobody can argue that they're, that it's perfect and it's a perfect substance. Anything can be abused. Anything can, you, you know, anything can, 
uh, everything in, in moderation, so to speak. And you can do, you can abuse anything. You can abuse water. Um, so it's not, I don't think it's, you know, I think we're focusing on the wrong things sometimes with cannabis and that, yes, there are problems, but we need to focus on what the benefits are. Um, this is a tool for people. It's not an end all be all just like nothing is, but it's a tool that we need to use and we need to get the biasness. We need to get the taboo away from it. Make sure that the research that's being done is not carrying that same taboo that has been associated with for the past 70 years. Well, you know, I like what you say about who's funding the research, because just in my own recent memory, if you look at a product like uh, Oxycontin, you know, you got like Purdue Pharma was saying, yeah, we get the science, this is a non-addictive. And then you get these federal agencies signing off on this stuff. And then we find out later, all you got to do is watch that Hulu series, Dope Sick, and you find out that everybody got hoodwinked just because of money. But I remember back in the 80s and 70s when they when Valium came along, they said Valium was a cure for alcoholism. But yet it turned out, you know, benzodiazepine addiction is worse than alcoholism. But yet it's backed by pharma, co-signed by the FDA, you know, all through special interest support. So you're damn right. It's buyer beware and, and consumer beware and you know, there's so much, I hate to say the word fake news floating around on every topic you can imagine, but this cannabis industry, the emerging news on the good, the bad, and the ugly, it, it, you know, half of it's fake. You know, I don't know where to get real information from. That's why I was excited about this podcast. And, and the more I go hang around with the cannabis industry people and followers, the more I realize I can't go into a, a store in Richmond where they sell, you know, the, uh, I don't even know what they call it, but they're like grow stores for consumers, you know. But when I start talking to the staff, the owners, the personnel, I would bet over half of them said, yeah, I used to be an alcoholic. Or I used to be an opiate addict, but now, you know, this is all I do. And they look fine to me and they're doing good. They're useful, productive members of the community. And they're all excited that there's some recovery houses popping up in the area that they, you know, some of them let you use methadone, some allow suboxone. They, they got some, you know, if you just want to do cannabis and none of these other drugs. And the data is coming back pretty strong. You know, here within the first year, one of these houses, they got a, a 40 percent retention rate of their people. And that's pretty good for a recovery residence to have a 40 percent retention rate after a year of, of the same folks. So the data is promising. I mean, you know, I, I see. And I don't see a whole lot of people collapsing over this. So, of course, I'm just a guy boots on the ground in the community. And, and you know, that's that's what's hard is sometimes, you know, the, we don't have the, the scientific research to, to back some of that stuff up. You know, some of these things that some of these real world experiences that so many of us have. You know, I, I came out to Colorado in 2014 with dollar signs in my eyes as far as a new industry, you know, a career that's blossoming. You know, I, I make a lot of money in it. Um, but my life was completely changed being in Colorado um, those first three years and seeing, uh, like, understanding the concept of a medical refugee, um, somebody that is fleeing their home state because they are, are not getting the help that they, they need. They're not, you know, they're not getting the, uh, the, anything that they need. So they're fleeing to Colorado to be able to use cannabis legally. And it's changing their, their world. They're changing their lives, changing their kids' lives, their wives' lives. You know, I've, I've, I've met countless families that have had to move from 
you know, all across the country to Colorado or the, or Oregon or Washington state so that they can get treatment for themselves or their wife or their kid. And these people are going on, you know, from having, you know, a, a very poor, uh, you know, daily life on, on many, many medications to coming out to Colorado to, to being able to get off a lot of those medications and, and really rely on cannabis and, well, and having well, great results. Yeah, yeah. The good news, I think, what is it like 30 something states have, you know, uh, medical cannabis. So we, they're, they're working in that specific area, but here, you know, here again, because it's a federal regulated, it's on that, um, the DEA schedule one, like we got guys here in Virginia, they, you know, the state will pay for them to get on methadone. Very dangerous, hard to get off of, you know, narcotics, same with Suboxone, but yet they won't pay for them to take medical cannabis, which is probably cheaper or just as cheap and maybe in the long run and a lot less easier to get off of if you want to get off of it, but because of the schedule one and the Medicaid and they, they won't, reimburse something on a schedule one so they're they're actually once again discriminating in their own little paper pushing way and and, and you, you know me i'm an abstinent-based recovery guy and and you know i've always was raised in recovery you know be fearful of these these things which you know it's a healthy fear to have i don't hang out in bars i don't hang out in liquor stores i don't hang out in pharmacies and i'm and i, and I don't see myself hanging out and grow houses or, you know, big cannabis parties. But at the same time, as I'm getting to know these people, I personally don't have any fear of, of consuming the product. You know, I'm excited to be able to grow a plant and give it to my friends and neighbors or have them, you know, have access to it if, if that's what they want. So, you know, there's a lot of fear that I had that I just don't have no more, you know, and the more I get to know, what's going on around me, the less fear I have. And I, and, and I wish other folks, you know, could experience that, you know, and uh, another reason, I guess I feel a call of somewhat to be in this space, you know, if for no other reason than to destigmatize it, help run interference on the exploitation that's getting ready to happen. That's already happening. You know, I, I don't know why God chose me. You know, I don't argue with them much. I just complain sometimes. <laughs> The uh, so your vision, and, and I know you and your brother want to want to be, you know, operative here in Virginia. You know, what what's the first couple things in front of you you'd like to see happen? I, it's education. You know, that's always the first thing for me. Um, you know, I, I like I said, I've, I'm a big proponent of cannabis. Has have been pretty much my whole life. Um, but I, I also understand that it's not the end all be all, and there's it's not the fix for everybody. Um, so I think the more education that we continue to to push, making education the priority here, um, the more we'll learn about it, and and the more that more information that we'll be able to give to to the consumer or the patient, so that they can make good educated decisions about what's going to help them. You know, and at the end of the day, that you're thinking of education. What's the worst negative thing you've seen come out, like? in Colorado. I mean, I'm talking about the effects of the cannabis plant, you know, is, is it kids dying or car wrecks or people not going to work or, you know, that's, that's a difficult question for me. Um, because I, you know, a lot of these things, you know, I, I, a lot of this, you know, if you're talking about being a gateway drug, if you're talking about, you know, the increased risk of, of uh, vehicle accidents and all this stuff, I mean, it's how can we definitively say that that person was only 
intoxicated by cannabis. You know, most of the time, you know, cannabis is something that is more used. Uh, it's, 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 it's a less, it's not as of a heavy drug for a lot of people. So I don't see it as a gateway, but I see it as like a stepping stone for people to use. So I think, you know, just because someone might be high on cannabis, it's like, well, I'd like to see the whole toxicology report to see what else might be there. Um, Cause I think, you know, there's a lot of people just trying to pinpoint right now, Oh, it's cannabis, but it's, you know, the, the research well, is not there. Our understanding of it's not there. You know, how do we even understand how somebody, what the limit is on somebody being able to drive intoxicated on cannabis? You know, that that's a standard that doesn't even exist right now that people are trying to, to you know, point out facts on about increased car accidents. Yeah, but there's no even standard to say whether or not somebody is intoxicated with cannabis. You know, the, the test is whether or not there's THC, you know, in their blood system, but it doesn't, doesn't say anything on the, in the, in, in, it doesn't say anything to how incapacitated they are because of it. Well, so, my, my experience with cannabis consumers and driving is they, if the speed limit is 65, they go on 45. You know? <laughs> now I can see where they might forget to stop for a green light, but, but also in Colorado, if you dig into the real facts, okay. Increase in car accidents, increase in detecting cannabis in the drivers along with other substances, but there's also an increase in population. And then you had to roll out mm -hmm. of the, the legalization. So, you know, if you put everything in proportion, I'm, I'm not sure it was that, that big of an impact, if any. No, and, and time and time again, from all these states, I mean, we're seeing statistics, we're seeing, uh, you know, we're seeing data that, that shows that, you know, crime is on a decrease, you know, crime associated with cannabis, you know, uh, youth use is on a de is on a decline in these states. Um, but that, and that's a problem with it as well Is we always have to look at, um, I'm sure, because I'm sure if Dr. Finn was here, he would be able to cite research that said the, the exact opposite of, the, of that. And that's the problem is that, you know, there's two different opinions and you can skew data with however you want at the end of the day. It all, it's all about who's paying for it. And that's why I say, you know, I got to chuckle, man. I got, you, you mentioned decrease in crime. I was at, uh, just yesterday I was at this event in my, in my County, Hanover County, and they had a sheriff there and they had a probably 10 sheriffs from surrounding County. They had Congressman Whitman was president, Congressman Higgins from New Orleans and my own sheriff. He said, well, crime is down 18% in Hanover County. And the first thing I thought of, that's because they quit arresting people for cannabis. It'd be a sharp decline overnight. You know, you know, the topic was, um, you know, protecting the thin blue line, which I'm all about. You got to protect the thin blue line. You know, you know, you got to have good enforcement out there on, on crimes and public safety. But but you damn right. Crime is down when you legalize something shouldn't be illegalized in the first place. That That's a thought I had. Yep. The um now how are you doing out there company wise? Has things turned around since we last talked, or are you still? Yeah, I think it's always you know I think anybody in the regulated space now is you know it's it's going to be more of a day to day thing. Um, you know we're we're highly highly dictated by the the market, and right now in Colorado we're seeing a very the worst market that it's ever been as far as wholesale cannabis is concerned. Um, you know, again, a number of different reasons. Um, but yeah, you know, we're, we're ticking. We'll, we'll survive another day. And what's important, uh, what's important at the end of the day. So. But you're not back where you were six months ago. No. Months and it, and neither is the market, you know. Right. So, like I said, you know, we're very, very dependent on how the market's doing. And right now it's at all-time low. So, Well, I'm going to do my, my special work with the big dog after this call. And you're going to see an uptick in prosperity. And 
just remember it's because I'm pulling for you. So yeah. <laughs> um, now fuel price is going out of the roof right now. That affect the cannabis industry? Absolutely. You know, I mean, that freight, you know, we, we, we deal with the same sort of issues that any other any other company or any other industry has to as far as, you know, increase fuel prices for freight and getting supplies, all this stuff, you know? Yeah. So it, it's definitely affected us as well in this industry. So that, that ad industry tied right into the rest of the industries in America. Absolutely. Well, we, uh, we've been chatting for a good little while now. I feel it's been productive. The, uh, any, anything you'd like to cover before we hang up here? Or I wish the doctor showed up though. I was looking for a spirited conversation so he, he probably thought it was too like i did <laughs> he, you know he might have because i think he's out your way too isn't he he's in colorado yeah so that's why i say that yeah because i don't I, I don't i just assume that it was two and i read the email so i i just i, I just would safe to say that he probably thought the same <laughs> you, you know that might that might be it good lord we'll have to get you both back here on the same time though because because i would like to get you know yin and yang going Oh, absolutely. And I, that's what I was really looking forward to. Because like I said, like I, I think for everyone, everybody should always seek to have their opinion shattered. Nobody should hold on to their opinion, uh, you know, indefinitely. Um, everybody should be able to understand and hear good arguments and to be able to, to rationalize it and bring it into your thoughts on your own. Um, and that's that's what I was hoping to do today with Dr. Finn. You know, it's I know that he has some concerns with it. And, I, you know, I will, I'd love to hear those and love to see, hear where they are coming from and seeing how warranted they are. Yeah, um, yeah. A, lot, a lot of times you hear about concerns and great minds come together and you can solve a lot of concerns, you know. Absolutely. It's yeah. it's it's good communication, good dialogue, not not trying to incite emotions, not trying to fight, just, you know, just trying to come right. to the table to, to, to educate. And I, I, you know, so I'd love to get on this again, you know, with Dr. Right. For sure. How uh, how things going in Virginia with Matthew and everything looking up or just stagnant or. I, it, it's looking good, you know, to be completely honest, as a, as a smaller operator, I'm, I'm really excited about, uh, you know, the state repealing the, the rollout of the, uh, you know, the recreational use sales from, right. from medical producers. Right. Um, I think that was that was that would have been a really, really bad play in my mind. You know, I think a lot of people are more focused on, oh, well, we don't have anywhere to buy weed right now. But that is not the issue. Uh, that is not the issue. The issue is giving the ability to pharmaceutical companies to get a leg up and have recreational sales before anybody else has that opportunity um and no to be completely honest i don't think anybody should be for that you know that's not that's not creating a sustainable good market that's just giving it to corporate uh, pharmaceutical america and i don't think anybody wants to go in that direction nowadays you know i think if they give anybody a leg up they ought to give it to the farm to table folks the the backyard folks the small Mm -hmm. operator folks i mean that just doesn't make sense to me why you wouldn't want to empower the people you know, before the special interest, you know, other than the fact that you're paying the bill. Absolutely. I mean, it, first and foremost, I, what, I loved what Colorado did when they rolled out uh, their um, adult use recreational program back in 2014 is they made you have you in order to be an owner on one of these licenses, you had to have a two year residency in Colorado, um, which did, you know, it didn't make it impossible for out of state uh, operators to come in, but it did make it very, very difficult and not impossible for corporate people to come in, um, which, you know, it, is good. I think that the, the, the residents of Virginia should have first right to come in and do this before multi-state operators from California, Colorado, Florida, Oregon before the, all these guys start coming in, right. uh, you know it's it, it should be 
for the resident in Virginia, especially with where Virginia is as an agricultural state. Yeah, I just, um, I just, I just had a thought. What's the best state out there? Well, who's got the best model right now? That's a tough one. I mean, I, that's a subjective question as well. Um, you know, I, it's. I, well, who's, you know, who's got who's got the worst? California, in my California. opinion. What, what yeah, makes I, them the worst? Their their uh, their barriers for entry, as far as licensing, is are are very very high. Their taxes are absolutely outrageous. Um, they're, they're just everything, everything across the board. It just makes it completely impossible to operate a business. So, but the but the black market is doing pretty good in California. It's better than it's ever been because of that. You know, a lot of people that wanted to come in into the you know the regulated space and get licensed. They either did and was pushed out or weren't able to to begin with. So what are they doing? The same thing they've always done, growing on the black market. Um, yeah. And as that and as that quality on the regulated market goes down, more and more people are going to go to the black market. You know, he said, if you need a plumber, call the plumber. You need an electrician, call an electrician. You, you, need, you need to know how to roll this stuff out. Call the people who experienced it. You know, quit, quit Amen. specializing it to just whoever's paying you. So. Well, I look forward to you. When you come back out here to Virginia, give me a call. You know, let's catch up, uh, get some seafood. You know, it's that time of year again. Um, I always appreciate your company, and I appreciate you coming on. And we're going to try to get our communication straight on East Coast, West Coast time with the good doctor. So don't be surprised if you get an email saying, oops, let's let's regroup. Sounds good. And I'm looking forward to it. I appreciate it, John. Always a pleasure. Uh, thank you, sir. Have a great day. Thank All you, right. too. Thank you, Justin. Good job. the CEO of the McShen Foundation and a woman in long-term recovery since May 27, 2007. I have not used drugs or alcohol. Woo -woo. Thank you so, so much to the Richmond Times Dispatch and all of our voters for getting the Herd podcast. Those podcasts are amazing. Not only has it helped thousands upon thousands of people in their recovery, as well as family members, but it has helped me in my personal recovery. I get to listen to them now in my car through Spotify and iHeartRadio. And it's just really, really important for us to be innovative in the addiction field and the recovery community. So when COVID hit, we had to be innovative. You know, we really had to think of like, what can we do to reach people that cannot go to 12-step meetings? smart recovery, faith-based, whatever, um, that we're shutting down constantly. So we were innovative here at McShen. Let's start podcast. So with Todd, John, Alex, um, and some other staff, you know, we all just kind of jumped in who can do what. And um, with Todd's lead and John's lead, the podcasts have been amazing and we're still doing them today. So I want to thank you for all of your votes and all of your energy and all of your support of our mission of healing families and saving lives. Thanks.